My guest today is General Robert Spaulding, author of Stealth War, and he's uh, been on Value Timmy multiple times. He has his own show called Generally Speaking. His expertise is China, cybersecurity, foreign policy, national security policies, and he was the former senior director to National Security Council, and he's here to tell us and educate us on what really happened with the Colonial Pipeline. General Robert Spaulding, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Timmy again. Great to see you again, Patrick. Yes, brother. So, what, what, Robert, what is going on? I mean, I got a lot of different data. They, did they pay the $4 million to $5 million to hackers? Biden's refusing it happened. This is the largest 5,500-mile colonial pipeline. I'm in Florida right now. It got hit. Many different states got hit. What can you tell us about what really happened here? Well, I don't. I can't tell you exactly what happened because I don't you know, work for the company. But, you know, it sounds like they were hit by ransomware. Uh, and if you know anything about ransomware, uh, they um, basically lock down your systems and tell you, you if you don't pay, we're not going to unlock them. And not only that, we're going to delete all your data. So uh, that's enormously, as you know, valuable to a company. So they'll pay almost anything to, to get that unlocked. And it sounds like that's what happened here in this case. So uh, is there a formula for ransomware on asking the right amount of money to get what a company is willing to Do you know there's would, a formula for it? Well, you know, um, I don't know if you remember the, the hijacking of ships that was going on near Somalia, mm-hmm. but um, there was a, they, they knew, uh, you know, what the cargo was worth. They knew how much the company was insured for. Uh, they knew, so it was a calculated business decision. And when they negotiated with the hijackers, in Somalia, I mean, they knew their business down to the penny. So I would imagine the same thing goes on for these um, for these hackers. They they uh, understand the the nature of the company, and then they basically figure out what they can extract. and And I think for them, um, it's it's not like um, just a, a smash and grab. It's a calculated business decision. So. Uh, in many cases, like in the cases of the Somalian hijackers, they had funders. So they may these guys may even be funded by somebody. They've got bills they got to pay. I mean, this is a business for them. And unfortunately, wow. we've created this vulnerable infrastructure that allows these businesses to thrive. How, how much is this is going on right now? How, are you seeing a lot of this? Take, I mean, obviously, this has been going on for a while, but the tactic and approach probably has changed. Are you seeing a lot more of this happening today? No, I don't think it's anymore. I think it's just pervasive across industry. Um, one of the things that got me you know, focused on uh, China was really understanding that this was going on. And, and when people think about this, they just think about the hackers. They don't think about the social engineering going on and the profiling of the company. These, these hacks um, can be very sophisticated in the way they work and in many ways can have state-sponsored activity behind them. You know, In the case of some of the companies I looked at, it wasn't so much as a cyber hack as it was a human hack. And, you know, they're using social engineering. I remember in one case, they basically found out that the guy that had uh, the keys to the, uh, the servers was actually a football fan, a college football fan. And so they crafted a newsletter for his uh, football team because they knew that he got it. And then they, they embedded in that newsletter a link that gave them access. So Many times they're looking at Facebook profiles of these people, Twitter profiles. They're, they're surveilling the company, who has access. And then they're trying to figure out what can what does this person click on? What are their habits? So it's a really sophisticated uh, human engineering. So it's social engineering, really, and, and, 
it takes a long time to really cultivate targets in, in, in this manner. It's just not like uh, you can spam people, but a lot of companies are getting sophisticated in terms of what they tell their employees about how to be careful about things. Some of the things I've seen have been gener basically generated for the person, the single person that they know that they can get access to the system. Do, do we know how uh, this dark side hacker group that's uh, uh, from Russia, do we know how they hacked into the colonial uh, pipeline? Has that come out public? No, I don't think so. But I would imagine it's some kind of social. My, my guess uh, would be that some kind of social engineering, they found out uh, somebody uh, that they wanted to target. They, they, they sent them. I would imagine some kind of phishing mail, email, and then they clicked on a link that they probably shouldn't have clicked wow. on, and and the company had access um, through that. Listen. It's very hard to just uh, break into a system. Most companies have firewalls and everything else, so they're looking for somebody to do something that prevent pro provides a vulnerability that they can exploit. You know, the thing that really people ought to be uh, concerned about is not only is this happening to things like Colonial Pipeline. Uh, we saw where um, a um, probably a state-sponsored um, uh, hacker was trying to put chemicals into water treatment in a city in Florida. We've seen the Christmas bombing in Memphis, where it took down uh, first responders and the and the whole cellular network for AT&T in Tennessee for like two days uh, last Christmas. So. There's all kinds of infrastructure attacks going on that, you know, when you look across the, the country, we've got a big problem here in terms of vulnerabilities. Yeah, I, th that's very obvious. And by the way, we're not talking about a small company. You're talking about 5,500 mile pipeline transports a hundred million gallons of fuel a day. This is a sophisticated company. It's not like they're, they probably have cybersecurity insurance. They probably have the right analysts. They probably have the right team in place. So this could happen from the smallest company to the biggest company. We, we've done these, you know, my wife, this will typically happen to us. It'll happen at least once a week. They'll get an email saying, hey, uh, Jennifer, uh, coming from me saying, hey, Jennifer, I just want you to know, I forgot your phone number. Can you please email it to me so I can call you back? And Jennifer will come and she'll say, Babe, did you email me this? I said, babe, why would I email you this? This is, I'm your wife, I'm your husband. I know your phone number. But they'll do this and so many times. So now we have a whole, a whole team that looks out for this. But no matter what you do, they seem to still be figuring out a way to how to get in there. What can companies do to prevent this from happening? Well, it's really about um, in teaching their employees uh, to do just what you did, which is, or your wife did, basically come and ask you, did you really send this? If you have any suspicion, first of all, don't click on any links. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, when I was in the Pentagon, uh, the joint staff got hacked and it was basically somebody clicked on a link in an email that they shouldn't have clicked on. Uh, and then that, that case, it was, uh, it was the Russians that, that we reported that had done it. But I mean, this stuff is going on all over the country. I think the, the problem is people don't realize how vulnerable, vulnerable our infrastructure and our companies and our government is to this type of thing. And we've looked at warfare through the lens of, you know, F-35s and tanks and ships and bombers, and I flew bombers. But quite frankly, warfare is coming to our shores, into our own living rooms, just like you said, into your wife's uh, email, because this is the way that we, that we, that we undermine our 
the economic, the social, and the political fabric of our society today. And that's what's going on in the big time. By the way, there was a guy named Roger Robinson who worked in the Reagan administration. And they, um, what they did uh, back in the Reagan administration is they, they slipped into Russia's supply chain a, a valve that ended up creating the biggest explosion, non-nuclear explosion in history was witnessed by our satellites in space in, in the Soviet Union. And so infrastructure attacks have been going on through nefarious means you know, since the Cold War. What's happening today is that we've connected all of our infrastructure and our companies to the internet. And that means anybody at any time can be attacked today. This, this, makes me, uh, this makes me think about, I mean, obviously you look at the stats, we've all read the stats, 68% of gas stations in North Carolina reported fuel outages, according to Gas Buddy, roughly half of all the gas stations in Georgia, South Carolina, Washington, DC, and Virginia also reported outages. There was an interview done this morning on Fox Business with Mario Bartiromo, where John uh, Castimatidis, who's a billionaire, says the payments have been made to the terrorists. I understand from my sources that $4 million was paid. He's calling them terrorists. I mean, we don't know who these people are. And, you know, what, what makes me think about this as you go into it, okay, so gas prices beginning of the year were around 225. They hit 303. That's a 40% increase, 35% increase like this. When you and I spoke last time, I mean, we've spoken and you got millions on top of millions of views where you were speaking from experience as the former senior director of National Security Council do you think this is a, you know, because they're saying maybe this is, because if you go on DarkSide's website, they'll say, here's our business model. Here's who we've hacked before. Here's who we've gotten money from. We're not political. We're not religious. Matter of fact, we even have some values and principles. We don't target funeral homes. We don't target health insurance. There's certain things they don't do. So these are very value-based criminals, if you want to call them. So they're even telling you how they go about doing business. Do you think this is at all linked to the man at the top, uh, Putin, who is, you know, encouraging this to take place? Or do you think this was just a couple of guys, you know, an organization that's making money and this is their business model? Well, I, I mean, that's the whole point, right? We don't know. And we don't even know if it's the Russians. I mean, it, it could be uh, coming from anywhere. It could be coming from within the United States. I mean, that's the nature of cyber attacks today. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, it's very hard to say uh, who it is or even what their motivations are. Like, it's funny because, you know, we we said that uh, all of a sudden uh, the lockdown stopped the coronavirus in China. You know, we can't even believe that. So I don't I would not believe anything that these guys said, because we have no way of verifying that information. I was talking to Bernard Carrick today. I said, uh, you know, he was here on the podcast. You know, Bernard Carrick is a former uh, commissioner of NYPD, 55,000 employees. And he also was the commissioner of uh, uh, the correctional department of New York. So he ran the prisons and he ran uh, 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 NYPD. And I said, how do you deal with things like this? He says, typically, you know, when, when, when we find out the business model of criminals to do these types of things, it takes us a while to adjust okay, and get better at it. I said, so who's more creative, the criminal or, you know, the organization, NYPD, DEA, CIA, FBI, whoever may be. He says it's typically the criminals more creative than us, but we try to make adjustments. Let's just say you're in charge right now, okay? And you get as much intel as you can, okay? How are you pivoting to protect, you know, 
this from happening because this affects the nation. This affects the populace. This affects people being scared. I'm in Dallas yesterday running a meeting. My wife says, the moment you land, go to the gas stations. I'm like, for what? I'm in Dallas. She says, baby, you haven't been following the news. I said, I just had a meeting with 2,500 people. I've been in a meeting from 7 a.m. till midnight. I don't know what's going on. She says, go look at what happened. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know this was taking place. But how would you be handling a situation like this yourself to make sure this doesn't happen again? I know you said training, education, all of that. But how do we even go above that? Do you go do the business model of the movie Catch Me If You Can with Frank Abingale? Do you, do you get some of those guys in to say, how do we go even track where this is coming from? Because, you know, it's very easy to do a proxy. You know, proxy wars, oh, it's the Russians, but it's really China. Oh, it's the Chinese, but it's really in the States. Oh, it's really, so how, how do we find out the fingerprints on this? Because that's really what we really need to figure out the fingerprints. How would you go about doing that? Well, so first of all, I, you know, if I was going to put uh, time and I had the, the resources and I was in charge, what I would do is go about protecting our infrastructure in the country. So it would really be about preventing this from happening in the future. You know, one of the things that we did during the Cold War is that we decided that we were going to focus on growing our economy. So we invested in infrastructure and manufacturing and science and technology. We haven't been doing that for a long time. What I, one of the things I said is that we needed to rebuild our critical infrastructure. Today, you could light off a high altitude nuclear weapon over the country and shut off the grid permanently. And that would be you know, devastating for our society. You saw what happened after Katrina. So it's really about strengthening and hardening our infrastructure, our SCADA systems that power our gas, power our electricity, it powers our water, it powers our transportation, our banking system, our roads are crumbling. You know, we've been spending almost a trillion dollars on defense uh, for the last 25 years, and it hasn't really helped us very much in, in these cases. And so I would reprioritize spending on defense. I would cut the defense budget by something like 10 to 25 percent, and I would reallocate that, that money into building a new, strong critical infrastructure that protected the society from these types of attacks. We see them happening every single day. I mean, think about it this, you know, you were in the army, you know, what would, what would you do if you were, you were coming under constant attack every single day? I mean, you would beef up your defenses. You would basically go out and go on the offensive. You know, in this case, we have to actually think into the future. Let's don't go back and try to catch a criminal. Let's strengthen our society so this doesn't keep happening. What, what do you mean by, by going on the offensive? Do you mean offensive like offensive? Let's go spend money well, in infrastructure. So, so one prepared? of the things. So one of the things that you would do, um, you know, if you're you're at a forward operating base, you would go outside the wire and start going on patrols. So we'd actually be looking for these people, you know, aggressively, and they can be found. It's just that. You know, right now, what happens is Colonial is not the government, right? And so the government is not going to protect Colonial. Colonial has got to protect itself. That's why they paid a fine. You know, if, if you believe that economic prosperity is a key component of a functioning society, and you're allowing your society to be raided, then you're not defending the sovereignty and independence of our country. Today, we have equality under the law. We don't have economic opportunity. Part of the reason is because we're allowing our companies to be destroyed in front of us. You know, I was taught to drop bombs on companies when we wanted a policy enacted elsewhere, like in Kosovo, for example. We dropped bombs on factories of the henchmen that were supporting Milosevic. 
That's how we got Milosevic to stand down because all of his support wilted wait, wait, away. Say, say this one more time. You, you were instructed to drop bombs on companies so in we, Kosovo? We took out the, the assets, the factories that were owned by the henchmen that were supporting Milosevic. That was what was done during the Kosovo war to get the Serbians to stop killing the Kosovars. And that we had to stop Milosevic. So it was using military force to achieve a political objective. The way we did that is by going after the assets of the people that were supporting them. What I found in 2014 when I started getting into this is, you know, you can take out a assets with the JDAM. You can also do what exactly happened to Colonial. You can begin to take out things using cyber, use social engineering. You could own the supply chain, just like I talked about with what we did to the Soviet Union. So there's a million different ways that you can attack a society. And that's what's going on. We have a society that has been, we're thinking in terms of this 20th century uh, way of protecting our society, like, you know, somebody's gonna drop bombs on us. No, they're going to attack our yep. economic, our political, our social, our financial system relentlessly until we are broke. That's the goal. And that's what, you know, the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, you know, most prolific are the Chinese, but I mean, they're all coming after us. And, and quite frankly, we are not thinking and we're not playing the right game. And that's why you're talking about cutting uh, defense uh, 10 or 25% and taking that and putting it into a different infrastructure because wars are not being played the same way as they were played 20, 30 right. years ago. Uh, and, and it's going a different direction. Uh, by the way, just out of curiosity, since we're already uh, talking about this, I'm going to take it on the angle with, uh, since your background is national security and foreign policy, uh, what what's going on right now with Palestine between Hamas and Israel? Okay, obviously we've seen it. We've seen the videos. We've seen the stories. We've seen one say, if they want to come against us, we're going to go. We saw what ben Netanyahu responded with, and it keeps happening. There were more events that took place today. It's still ongoing. How ugly can this get? Or do you think this is going to calm down and it's going to be the traditional war that they keep having, you know, every few years? You think this can get ugly or you think it's going to calm down? No, I think I think uh, I think the Trump administration basically looked at this and said, look, we're not going to let the Palestinians get in the way of Middle East peace anymore. In fact, they're out of the equation. We're going to go after whatever peace we can we can achieve. And I think what's happened is the Palestinians see in the Biden administration an ability to basically tie peace in the Middle East to solving the Palestinian issue. And that's an issue that, you know, from my perspective, I don't think Palestine, the Palestinians want to solve. Yasser Arafat had the opportunity to solve this and basically decided not to. He felt that he could make more money by continuing to be, uh, you know, prevent that from happening. So I think the Palestinians think they have an opportunity to basically go back and and uh, relitigate this again. And I think, you know, it, the, the Trump administration was really achieving in the in the last part of the administration was really achieving some goals because they said, look, we can't solve the Palestinian. We can't basically solve all of Middle East peace. And by saying, hey, we have to solve the Palestinian issue first. No, let's start. Let's start going after those low hanging fruit. Anybody knows that if you're trying to solve the hardest problem first, you're and you're making everything else contingent on that, that you're going to be uh, you're bound for failure. And I think that's the Palestinians sense that. And I think that's what they're um, that's why they're doing this. What's the what's the right move to make today for U.S.? What is the right move in U.S. to make? Now, obviously, we're not a Trump administration. We're a Biden administration. It's a different one. What is the right move for America to make that we're watching this taking place? They're going back and forth. It doesn't seem like it's slowing down. Obviously, you know, we know uh, historically Israel has got one of the strongest air forces. And everybody knows how powerful 
their Hamas is, you know, their, uh, 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 what is it, Assad is, their uh, secret, you know, the intelligence they gathered, they're one of the best in, in the, uh, around the world. But what role should America play in this? Well, I don't know if there is a role for America to play in this. I think one role we shouldn't play is to basically say, um, when the Israelis respond to attacks and provocations to say, hey, guys, cut it out, you know, don't stop, stop, you know, responding to the provocations and attacks. I think, quite frankly, it let let the Israelis settle it and don't um, in any way support or give any kind of credence to or or support for what the Palestinians are doing. I think that's what they're hoping to see. They want, to, they want to see something, any kind of sliver of sign under the Biden administration that would give them indication that they're going to come down on Israel um, to, to prevent them from re responding to their provoca provocations and attacks. I saw earlier today, Biden talked about the fact that they're going to stay out of their way and kind of try to let them hash it out, which I think you probably agree with that decision. But you're seeing a lot of people on the news that are saying things like, I heard a story from Trevor Noah, he was explaining this whole thing. And he says, oh, I don't know. I know people are going to get upset. But when I was a kid and I was growing up, you know, my, I would fight with my brother and sister. And one time my younger brother hit me and I hit him back. And my mom said, why would you hit somebody that you know they can't hurt you? Why hurt somebody that you know they can, even though they hit you first? There is this fantasy of, hey, I know they're bombing us, but we know you can destroy them. Just let it go. Just let it go. Why is it so important for Netanyahu to not just look the other way, instead to retaliate? What, what is the downside of him not retaliating versus him retaliating? I think if you don't retaliate, if you don't um, deal with the, the attacks and the provocations, and you invite more. It's, it's, it, you it's invite more. Sense. It happens all the time. Did you say you invite more? You invite more, you invite more attacks. Now, all of a sudden, you've got the, the Lebanese um, coming in and joining in, and maybe even the Syrians, you know, you have to, it, it's, it's really, you know, one of the things I remember about the, the, the Trump administration, I was actually at Mar-a-Lago, um, I was back at the hotel, and I knew that she was um, having uh, dinner with the president, and then I saw the strikes uh, happening in Syria. So the, the strikes happening in Syria were twofold. One was to uh, basically deal with the use of chemical weapons, but also to tell she that, you know, hey, I'm, I mean business. So in a lot of ways, you have to basically meet provocation with strength or else you're inviting more attacks. I had a CIA agent on last week, Mike Baker, I think his name is Michael Baker. Yeah, and interview hasn't come out yet, but it'll come out here soon. And I was speaking to him, I said, a uh, question for you on who is the best, you know, secret agency, you know, intelligence agency in the world. Of course, we got CIA, MI6, Assad. Uh, uh, Mossad, all these other ones that are out there, which one would you say is the best one? Is it Israel? Is it ours? Is it UK's? And he said it's US's agency that's better than everybody else. Of course, you have to say that because that's who you represented. You were part of it for nearly 20 years. But here's a question for you. How superior is China's intelligence agency today? Because th that name has never dropped amongst the other MI6. Is China kind of looking around saying, please don't put us on that list because we kind of like the fact that none of you guys know how far ahead we are of you, how much more advanced we are of you, because all the three names you're talking about, they're innocent. We're willing to go places that they're not willing to go. How would you describe to the average person? You've been 
you've lived in China, I think, twice. One time you went there as a, in, well, you were in the Air Force, and then you came back and you went back again, and you were a general in the Air Force. So you've been studying the topic of China for quite some time. Matter of fact, when you were the senior director one time at the National Security Council, you got up to kind of give a briefing to everybody about what really, why China is really the biggest enemy. And you had McConnell sitting on one side, Biden sitting on one side, one's a Republican whose wife has got family over there with the big uh, construction company. And you got Biden, obviously, with his son having a, a relationship with China. And then six months later, they fire you. Uh, maybe you triggered something when you said that. But how strong is their secret you know, intelligence agency against all the other ones in the world? Well, I think it, it's, a, it's a strength of their system. And, and it's a fact that everything and everybody uh, is responsive to requests by the Chinese Communist Party. If you're a student, if, you're, if you run a company, I don't know if you remember, but you know, if you're a billionaire in China, you can just be disappeared. Uh, you know, look at Jack Ma, look at you know, um, a bunch of other billionaires that have basically find, found themselves you know, out of power. So their system is one in which the party requires people to do things uh, and, and doesn't take no for an answer. And so, um, you know, we think of, okay, the, if you get hired by the CIA, CIA that's one thing. Uh, if, you're, if you're running a company, you know, you're not part of the government, you're not supposed to be doing anything funny business. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't see the world that way. And in fact, they enlist everybody, the entire population in one way or another. They either use indoctrination to basically you know, give a party line, but they also use the fact that, you know, uh, companies, Chinese companies are global. Uh, they use the fact that the, the market of China is an incredible draw for other companies. So you know, one of the things that just recently happened, I don't know if you saw, uh, Shanghai Expo, a girl gets up on top of a Tesla and starts jumping up and down and saying the brakes are bad and, and, and I got bad service from Tesla. What happens? So that, do, do, they, do they smash that protest? You remember, this is a country that killed 10,000 people in Tiananmen Square. No, no, they videotape it. And it goes on national media all over China. And then it's picked up on social media. Don't buy Tesla cars, buy Chinese electric. Tesla's the number one selling electric vehicle in the market in China. Now they're down 27%. It's falling like a brick. What are they doing there? What was that about? You know, so... Who is, who is the target ultimately of that attack? The target, I would say, of that attack is Elon Musk. And the target of that attack is not so much Tesla, I believe, as it is SpaceX. Why? SpaceX is building Starlink. What could, what could Starlink do? Starlink could, could transmit into the mainland China and provide internet to the people of China. I think that's one of the things that the Chinese Communist Party is concerned wow. about. And so they basically want to send a lesson to Elon Musk. And now, you know, he's trapped. He's basically sold the market on the fact that he's going to have all these sales in China. They've got him. They've, they've, they've hooked him. And, and this is what they do. I've seen it over and over and over again. What They wait till they got you. They got you hooked. And then they start to turn the screws. And you don't even know what they're trying to get right now. And then I, was, I saw a report, you know, the, the you know, officials at Tesla are trying to figure out what do they even want? They, they may not even tell you what they want um, until, you know, you, they, they've let you kind of swing a little bit. So this is the problem with the Chinese Communist Party is 
It's not just their, their, their they have impeccable, impeccable um, intelligence services because they collect so much data on us and, and have AI that they, that they run. In fact, you know, they say they want to become the Saudi Arabia of data for their AI, their ability to collect intelligence on us from your smartphone, everything around you. So they have an incredible machine that is merged with their commercial uh, sector in a way that, that, quite frankly, we don't understand. And we don't, we, we don't look at Jack Ma and say, hey, Jack Ma is not only working for the Chinese Communist Party, he's also working for Alibaba. So you know, you don't, you, you didn't even know he was a communist member until he came out and said so. And then, you know, of course, they, they, they deposed him from his role as, as CEO. So this is a system. It's a far, far more um, dangerous system than we've ever faced because we've allowed it to come into our midst. So, so the concern is if Elon Musk does what he wants to do and he provides free internet for the folks in China, they may be able to get on Facebook, Twitter, create those kind of accounts where folks around the world can really see what's going on in China rather than being able to control and silence everyone in China. Is that kind of what you're saying? That, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> do you think they will ever have freedom of speech to the point where we can actually see what's going on? Do you think it'll ever happen? No, I, you know, I think Silicon Valley made such an incredible model for dictatorship. I mean, it, it's beautiful because you can you collect all the information about your entire population everywhere from everything that they do, cameras that are around the city, you know, all the transactions they make. You figure out what makes them tick. What are they responsive to? Do they have a sick kid? You know, do they have a mortgage that's going bad. Does they got a business that's going bad? And then when if you need if you need something, you begin to turn the screws or, you know, if you, if you don't want this person to, to be a success because eh, they're they're a nonconformist, they don't they don't they don't like the government. Or they don't like being told what to do. OK, well, you just basically say, hey, their kids can't get into school. They can't get a mortgage. You can't get a job. You know, it all becomes related, you know, when you have this global uh, globalized uh, uh, economy and Internet where everything's connected. You, when you have financial relationships with a, when a, with a uh, regime like that, and they can pull the trigger, what did they do with uh, the NBA uh, when Daryl Morey talked about Hong Kong? What did, they, what, did, what did LeBron James say? He came out and said, well, the NBA better not say anything. So here is a, a, a National Bas Basketball Association in the United States basically being told by one of its players that the Chinese Communist Party shut up and said shut up and you better shut up. Um, I've seen this uh, time and time again in U.S. corporations. So, you know, we think that we live in a free society. In, re in reality, our society is being engineered for us right out from under us. And we don't really understand it because we don't think in terms of um, this, this digital world that, by the way, we created. Silicon Valley created this. Uh, I've asked you this before. I'm curious to know what you'll say today. What are your top three biggest threats we're facing today in America, not worldwide, specifically in America. If you were to say, number one is this, number two it is, number three is this, what would you say it is? I think number one is the Fed. I think the, I think the Fed has gone off the rails. You know, they believe there's no inflation going on. Um, I think the inflation is showing up in the, it has been showing up in the stock market, it's showing up in real estate. I think it's showing up in things like Bitcoin. I mean, people are just losing their minds trying to figure out how they're not going to lose the value of a dollar. Uh, so I think the Fed's a, a big problem. 
I do think that um, the political system's a problem. I think the parties are focused on themselves, not on what the American people want. And I think we've engineered this system um, through both the, the introduction of dark money, but also in terms of the way we've structured the, the, the voting system, the election system. What I'm talking here about is closed primaries. I'm talking about the fact that if you don't do what the party says, they'll primary you out the next time. So I think the political system is a big problem. And I think the, um, the, the unwillingness of the federal government to really focus on the things that matter to, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton understood industrial policy. He understood economic strength. He understood that national security you know, United States security came out of growing the economic power and prosperity of the American people. And to do that, you had to you had to put the American people first, industrial policy. You know, we don't have to have a centralized economy, but we do have to recognize that other countries, Germany, um, Japan, uh, China in particular, have industrial policies that are that are set to erode the economic productivity of America. I think having the government understand this and really, you know, focus on economic prosperity of Americans is is really the 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 third and in, in, in our industrial policy, the third piece of that. And so, you know, financial, I think political, and I think economic uh, is our number one, two, and three uh, problems in this country. You think we're about to have a third party after what happened with Liz Cheney and how she opposed the, the Republican Party has been now divided into two? You think it's going to turn into something else, or you think they'll eventually unite? Um, you know, I really, um, you know, I really subscribe to what Catherine Gale and Michael Porter wrote in the book, The Politics Industry. I think what happened in Alaska in November is going to is going to happen more. I don't think it's uh, we're going to have three parties. What I think what's going to happen is, uh, you know, particularly what happened with all the mail-in ballots in in the in the November elections, where you know state um, secretaries basically came up and, and unilaterally decided to send out, you know, massive mail, mail in uh, ballots. I think this, the legislatures are standing back up and saying, hey, no, we had a constitution. Um, we had a state constitution said and our U.S. Constitution said this legislature is supposed to uh, determine voting rules, not not the executive branch of a state. So I think you're starting to see votes. In that, I think you're going to see people stand up and say, look, I'm tired of the parties not doing what I asked. So um, it's not about Liz Cheney. It's about D.C. that doesn't work for the people anymore. I think many people would agree with you. General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Thanks. Great seeing you again. Yes, likewise. Take care. Pretty powerful and concerning, isn't it? If you enjoyed what he had to say and you want to know more, there's two videos I want you to watch. One of them is an interview he did with a hacker, Chris Roberts, where he talks about the alarming uh, you know, challenges that we're facing with cybersecurity today in America. The other one is the interview I did with General Spaulding, where he got deeper into how China silent takeover of U.S. while the American elites slept. That's his book, Stealth War, that he talks about China. It got a few million views. If you've not seen this one, click over here. If you want to know more about cybersecurity, click over there. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.